Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. These conversations center the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And so we begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia. We are excited to be joined today by Dr. David Truy, Assistant Professor of Sociology at James Madison University. We'll be talking with David today about his excellent new book, Football in the Park, from the University of Chicago Press. Football in the Park is an ethnography of Latino soccer players who regularly play in an upscale Los Angeles neighborhood where they are not always welcome. David takes us deep inside the world of these men, whether they're playing or sharing beers afterwards, showing how they build relationships and a sense of who they are, often finding job opportunities as well as a renewed sense of self-worth and community. David, welcome to the podcast. And first of all, congratulations on a really interesting and engaging book. Uh, Thank you so much. It's uh, really wonderful to be here. And let me say I'm a big fan of everything you're doing with this uh, ethnographic marginalia project. Thank you so much. That's uh, always great to hear from uh, a seasoned ethnographer like yourself. Um, So, you know, we thought we could start off this conversation with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps um, how you became a sociologist and what drew you to ethnography in particular. Well, I I appreciate the question. And I think uh, my kind of origin story as a sociologist is pretty familiar. And that's one of being a you know, wowed by the wonders of a sociological imagination by one of my early sociology professors, and that was uh, Professor Christina Gomez, and I've kind of followed her lead ever since. Um, But I will say, you know, spare the self-indulgence here, you know, my early summers as a kid in France with my father's family, I think was really important for me and kind of showing uh, 
kind of the possibilities of a different world, that there was other ways of doing things. And I think that those early experiences kind of forced me to question my own upbringing in the suburbs of Chicago. And, um, you know, and, and then later in life, sociology kind of provided the tools and perspectives uh, to make sense of these differences, these contradictions, uh, you know, and what we talk about as kind of the social construction of reality. Um, now, in terms of what kind of drew me to ethnography, I think it's really that ethnography drew me to sociology. Uh, you know, the first book I read in Professor Gomez's class was, uh, you know, a play uh, in search of respect. And I've been kind of hooked ever since because I found that, you know, ethnography really got at lived experience in a real captivating way that I didn't see, you know, represented in more distant or contrived methods in sociology and elsewhere. So actually, that's that's funny, because in search of respect for me as well was a really inspiring and, uh, you know, something that made me think, wow, this is, you know, not only doing doing research that's interesting, but but actually really engaging writing, um, which is something mm-hmm. that I think is is carried out in your book as well. Um, so what how does how does sort of that general interest in sociology, how does that turn into a project uh, about Latino soccer players in in the park? Um, what, yeah, what's the story can, of the book? Yeah, no, um, you know, I think, you know, like all things, these take a lot of different turns. You know, I, I, I went to graduate school at UCLA and I arrived there in the fall of 2007. And, and I did have an interest in soccer and immigration. Uh, but I think when I got to UCLA or I arrived at UCLA and saw kind of the broad diversity of things people were studying there, I, I was pretty open about what I was going to do for, you know, my dissertation. And uh in my second quarter there, I was taking the ethnographic methods sequence. Uh, and this was with Professor uh, Bob Emerson. And I think it was the last time he taught that class. So we were real, you know, privileged to, uh, to, to get that class from him. And, yeah. you know, we had to, uh, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a sink or swim type of approach in a bit and find <laughs> the project very quickly. And he came in one day with a flyer he had received uh, in his neighborhood. And this flyer is reproduced in the book about kind of uh, a lot of local uh, angst and anger about this soccer field, you know, kind of a Wild West uh, uh, references. And, uh, you know, intrigued, I decided to go, uh, you know, visit the park and, uh you know, so when I arrived there, you know, it was an afternoon or something. And, you know, I didn't see, you know, local residents, you know, with protesting with pitchforks. I didn't really see any of this, you know, local angst necessarily. Uh, but I did get to talking to some guys at the park that were on the soccer field. And, uh, you know, I asked them about the local residents. They didn't really have much to say about that. But when they when they saw that I liked to play and that I could play, they were really excited to tell me about these midday pickup games. And uh, so I, you know, the next day I decided to go check out those games and, um you know, I saw this kind of very familiar scene uh, that was very interesting, uh, but that hadn't really been written about. And most people kind of really only know, you know, from afar. And uh, I thought this is what I wanted, to, in a sense, to study. And, uh, you know, I found this uh, nice tweet about my book saying, you know, they'd been waiting 20 years for somebody to write this book. And, 
And I appreciate that. It only took me, you know, 13 years. And uh, <laughs> interesting, I, you know, I, I arrived at the park in January 2008, and the book came out in January 2021. So it's a, you know, 13 year process. But uh, I was really enthralled by the games. And uh, but I will say that the neighbor story conflict is always part of the story because it kind of really fed into the overall theme about how these men and other men like them. You know, they're welcomed as workers in these neighborhoods and others, but, you know, less so as people uh, in the mm-hmm. park. Yeah, I mean, uh, on that note, I guess, uh, for the uninformed listeners, the book is about Latino soccer players who regularly play in an upscale Los Angeles neighborhood, where, as you put it, they're not always welcome, right? Um, mm-hmm. The book also reveals the kinds of identities, friendships and community that the players forge as they go about engaging in the sport. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how crucial the park as a space is for the community that you were studying, but also what kinds of affordances and limitations the park offered to you as a site of ethnographic inquiry? Yeah, no, these are excellent questions. Thank you. I mean, first, I mean, the park was huge for these men because, you know, they, they you know operated in a world of kind of somewhat limited options in terms of networking and socializing. You know, most of them were not members of private clubs. Uh, they didn't live in spacious homes with big backyards. They didn't have necessarily a disposable income or even levels of comfort to hang out in bars and restaurants. So the park was this crucial resource, in part because it was free. Uh, it was also relatively safe in a city where that's not always the case. Uh, it was a familiar type of environment to, to socialize with others. Of course, you know, there was this beautiful, accessible soccer field and other nice resources. Uh, and it attracted people with similar interests uh, that they maybe not, might not have found elsewhere. And uh, as you very nicely put it, it, therefore, it kind of allowed them this place to uh you know, build relationships, establish reputations, you know, exchange resources. And it was my ability to see this kind of unfold on site in the moments that I think is sometimes overlooked sometimes in migration literature that's more interested in kind of the consequences of these ties, necessarily how they're formed. And, uh, And I also think the park was kind of crucial in that you know, yes, they face certain constraints, obviously, but nonetheless, it, it was it allowed them to create and sustain their own world and doing it on their own was key because they didn't necessarily have those opportunities, you know, in church, at home and definitely not on the job. Um, mm-hmm. So that's first. And, uh, you know, Eric Kleinenberg's written wonderful stuff about social infrastructure that kind of makes that point as well. Um, now, in terms of, you know, the park as an ethnographic site. Um, you know, obviously it, it provided me a lot of, as you put it, affordances. And I think that's why there's so many park studies is because they're, they're somewhat, you know, easily accessible, definitely more so than more private or semi-private places. So I think mm-hmm. as an ethnographer, you know, and it, you can explain your presence just as another person in the park. Uh, now there's a lot of things that are hidden that you don't necessarily see. And I think some park studies do gloss over through more superficial views. But nonetheless, parks are very accessible, and that's why there's so many. Um, But I also think that accessibility can be a trap, though. Um, Mm -hmm. You only focus your lens uh, on the park and think that you're necessarily getting the whole picture. Because as I try to do in this book, and maybe we'll talk about it later, is that you need to see how the park fits in the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that can be a challenge uh, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, thank you. That's really well put. Um, so the so the park is your your in your entree into the lives of these men. Um, 
as you said, and, and you sort of explained how you first came to the park. Um, but in reading your book, it's, it's clear that one, this is a supportive community uh, for a group of men, that it's very meaningful to them, as you said. Um, but at the same time, this seems like sort of an intimidating place to enter. Like you write about, you know, how somebody just showing up wouldn't be sure even, you know, how you get to play at first. Um, so what what was your experience like that that first the first time or the first few times you went when when you were an outsider, unknown, unknown to the to the people you end up knowing quite well? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as I, as you, you know, and as I write, you know, like most newcomers, you know, uh, I was ignored and nobody really, you know, paid much attention to me. Uh, but I think that, you know, as you men, and I, I don't even know if I mentioned this, but that was kind of crucial because you're, they're telling them to others that this world matters and that no, we're not just letting anybody kind of enter in, into our world, you know, uh, but to, to focus back on the, the question, it's, you know, it took a lot of time, you know, fortunately, I'm, a, you know, grew up playing soccer, played soccer in college, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so I had certain abilities that maybe um, facilitated entry a little more, <coughs> uh, excuse me. But it was really, I'm going to take a quick sip here. Not, not a problem. <coughs> excuse me. Um, but it was really kind of over time uh, that I kind of built these relationships and, uh you know, I think a big moment was one where I was tossed a jersey uh, or I was, you know, months later invited to play on one of the league teams or invited to uh, have beers afterwards. I mean, it was a really kind of drawn out process. Unfortunately, I did have uh, time uh, to kind of follow through. And, um, you know, I built a lot of relationships with these men. Uh, we shared different kind of personal milestones, both in the park and elsewhere. Uh, but I was always, you know, I don't want to kind of overstate my, you know, necessarily my relationships uh, with the men because I was always conducting research. I was always an outsider in some way, as close to as I got to these men. You know, they threw my wife and I a baby shower the day, you know, the day before my son was born two weeks early. You know, so I had really deep relationships uh, and really valued them. But I was always very, you know, clear with myself and with them that I was conducting research. So that, I mean, that, that leads to a question that I'm, that I'm interested in, which is, you know, as, as ethnographers, there's all kinds of ways that we spend time with and, and develop relationships with research participants. Um, so I, I do research in, in rural Colombia, and, and actually not even as part of research, uh, I, I ended up playing on the village basketball team here, um, which, which, was, which I did until, until COVID, basically. Um, and which has been fun and has sort of different from your experience where you were actually researching this this space of of playing sports. Um, that wasn't my plan, but it I ended up getting a lot of uh, you know building trusting relationships through sport that mm -hmm. then were really useful to me in terms of um, in terms of people opening up to me. Um, mm -hmm. So. I, I guess I'm curious, you know, what the specific sort of playing sports and um, and the kind of trust and relationships that build that that people build through that, uh, whether doing ethnography or not. Um, how, how do you think that ended up affecting uh, affecting your research? I mean, I, I think it was huge. And, you know, I think I needed to kind of participate in that world. And, and I think one of my favorite quotes of the book is, you know, one day. 
you know, Polo sees me, I'm kind of, Polo was one of the, the organizer, main organizer of the pickup games and kind of a key figure in uh, the park and my book. And he kind of sees me, I've been quiet all day and I'm kind of hesitant when beers are being passed around. And he kind of blurts out, you know, if you're not a drunk, go look for another park to study. Uh, now, he didn't mean that I needed to be a drunk. And I think if I became a drunk, he would have been disappointed. But he was reminding me that this that I needed to participate in this world, that this world, not just as an ethnographer, you know, but also just as a participant, that this world worked when people get, gave and took, you know, that they participated in certain ways. And but the key thing is this participation could take multiple forms both as an ethnographer or as other people in this scene. You know, I didn't have to drink a lot. I didn't have to play soccer enough um, that well necessarily to participate. I mean, probably, you know, there's plenty of people that hung out while the men were drinking that did not drink. Uh, probably one of the most, one of the more cherished people of the soccer games was Kathy, uh, an older white woman who was probably the worst player there, but people loved her uh, because she participated in that scene. And, um, and I mentioned this because, you know, I could have done this study in very different ways. Yes, I was a pretty good soccer player. Yes, I, you know, enjoyed having beers with the guys. But the key was to kind of be present, to be open uh, with, with the other men, to build relations, to build trust. Um, and that, that was kind of obviously crucial. And it sounds like similar things are happening in your field work as well. Um, so just to follow up on that. Did you have uh, certain dilemmas about uh, drinking with participants as a mode of engaging with them? Like, were there certain, I guess, um, yeah, questions that came to your mind about uh, whether that's a good idea in terms of research? Uh, yeah, I was just curious to know. Yeah, no, that's a really important question. I think all ethnographers are, uh, you know, wrestling with different kinds of dilemmas. And uh, so this played itself out kind of as personal dilemmas in the sense that, uh you know, sometimes I didn't want to go to the park. The park was tiring. I didn't want to drink. I was injured. Uh, the park was boring. I was, you know, uh, I was kind of tired of the park. But at the same time, I was constantly, you know, when I was not at the park, worried about, you know, missing out on something or missing the park. Uh, but when I was in the park, I was stressed out about things I had to do outside of the park and, you know, right. Get it, you know. So I was constantly wrestling with those personal dilemmas, and and the, maybe the drinking kind of heightened it. But I think all of us wrestle with wanting to spend time in the field, but also being exhausted by the field. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, I, I really kind of faced a lot of dilemmas of intervention. You know, when to intervene and when not to. Uh, right. And this especially came up around issues of drinking, uh, or also when there was, you know, occasional fights in the park, when to kind of step in and when not to. And I was constantly kind of wrestling with these dilemmas. And, uh, and in part because, you know, the longer I spent there, I kind of developed this role as this kind of white guy, kind of outsider, where I was a little more neutral in certain situations where I was able to step in in a way that, was maybe helpful to breaking up some fights, but certainly when the police or other authorities were involved, you know, I had certain privileges. So I felt a certain kind of, you know, not obligation, but, you know, was more, you know, willing to intervene. And, and the dilemma is, of course, you know, am I affecting the research site? Am I contaminating it? All of these kinds right. of issues, which didn't bother me too much because one, just as a human being, I felt the need to sometimes get involved. 
Uh, but more so that, you know, if you spend years in a park, in a place, you're, these things are going to pop up whether you intervene or not, you know, so yeah. you're not contaminating something that you're spending so much time with. Uh, but but probably most important, and this is kind of maybe what I would encourage and other people like Forrest Stewart have encouraged ethnographers is to see how, you know, actually Jack Katz, my main advisor at UCLA, used to tell me that, well, look, you know, your problems might also be their problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I came to learn is that the same dilemmas I had about the park, I needed the park, I hated the park, uh, <laughs> they're dealing with the same things as well. You know, they're constantly. Mm-hmm talking about how the park doesn't pay, but when they're at work, all they want to do is get back to the park. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're also dealing with when to get involved, when not to get involved. So the more I kind of thought about my own dilemmas, it made me realize that they're dealing with these same kind of, they're wrestling with these same emotions. Now, of course, I'm, you know, I'm coming from a different place. I have, you know, other issues at work as well that are different from theirs, but we still, there was some shared kind of sense of, the dilemma of the park and the park doesn't pay is, you know, one of the, or the Los Jugadores del Parque, which is a, a term of endearment, a term of ridicule kind of gets at these dilemmas mm-hmm. that are found in the park. Mm-hmm. So to, to that point of similarity and difference, um, and also, I guess, to the, to the access and, and building relationships in the book, you have this, uh, what I think is a really interesting story about, and you said it was an, a sort of a watershed moment in, and you being accepted within this community um, is when you received a a drinking citation. Um, Would Mm -hmm. would you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah. So the, you know, the police were constantly patrolling the park and, uh, and, you know, they, they knew it was a place of drinking and uh, you know, but the issue is they would come from far and everybody would necessarily see, you know, they would see them and they'd yell, you know, police or whatever. And, uh, beers were often stashed or thrown away. And, uh, you know, so the police never totally knew who was drinking. Occasionally they caught people, uh, quote unquote, red handed, but it was also just kind of often just based on their assumptions about who was drinking and who was not. And they often just assumed because I was white and I was usually wearing soccer clothes, which was one way we tried to get out of drinking tickets is I rarely would get a drinking citation. Uh, until one time I was literally caught red-handed. And uh, <laughs> well, that's the scene with Valderrama where he was roughed up pretty badly by uh, the police. And uh, so I, you know, you know, again, I didn't really spend a lot of time talking with the police. They were difficult to engage with. Uh, so I don't exactly know what was going through the officer's mind, but I was written up a ticket and, you know, they have to put it in the computer system. And I don't, that ticket was never, I don't know what happened to that ticket. Uh, I do suspect that he was worried I would contest uh, specifically the, the, you know, the, the manhandling and the, the, the physical aggression towards Valderrama. And I think, I, I don't know what happened, but I never had to pay that ticket uh, where there was other men that six, seven, eight tickets they received, you know, while I was in the park. Um, that really kind of reflects, you know, the privileges I had and the different ways police interact with uh, with folks. Um, now, to get to your question in terms of belonging, it, it was, you know, kind of a, a badge of honor almost in the park. And uh, <laughs> the men appreciated that I'd been there long enough that I had, right. kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, like the scene in Goodfellas when those little kids uh, the, uh, get their first uh, book in. Uh, so. Yeah, it's like a rite of passage, right? Like you know, yeah. uh, but can be disaster. Can also be a disastrous rite of passage in terms of you know right. not paying it and then getting fines and warrants and et cetera, and and also yeah. the 
quality in terms of how police respond to some people drinking and others not. Absolutely. Um, what we also found very compelling in the book was how you connected the interactions and conversations in the park to lives beyond the park. And you spoke a little bit about this in the beginning of the episode. Uh, so why did you choose to move beyond the park? How did you do it? And did doing so change the way you looked at the interactions in the park? Absolutely. I and mean, this was kind of, for me, the big kind of, you know, move in this book, uh, the big shift that I, that I think kind of moves this book uh, a little beyond other street corner ethnographies that I love. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really looking at how uh, the park mattered for the men within the context of their larger life. And, and the way for me that I was able to really do this is to follow some of the men at uh, and these were kind of small scale kind of home improvement jobs. Uh, usually they were, you know, uh, jobs that they had they had acquired on their own. And uh, uh, so that's kind of what I did. And I can talk about the limitations I faced looking beyond the park in a second. But in doing that, I was able to see firsthand how the park mattered for their work. I could see how ties that they formed in the park translated into work opportunities, whether through referrals, whether working together or in other ways. So I could really see it concretely. Uh, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I saw by looking at another site in their lives, I could see how they were doing the kind of the exact same forms of networking and negotiating that I saw in the park, they were doing it elsewhere, whether it was with their employers, other workers, neighbors, or other people they came in contact with. And that kind of helped me see, uh, and again, I, I knew it in the abstract, but seeing it concretely, how the park was just one piece of a broader context of interactions. Um, mm-hmm. And also by, you know, watching the men at work and especially kind of the drudgery of this type of work and kind of the unequal relationships with employers. Uh, I saw that, you know, the park provided a special place where they could be someone uh, that they didn't, couldn't necessarily be at work. Um, Another place I followed the men was, you know, you know, socializing in other places, occasionally bars or other other public places. And I could see that there, there was a certain degree of danger in, in, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't that respectable in a way that I saw how the park was, uh, you know, which was a certainly uh, would have been surprised to the neighbors that the, the park actually was the safest, most respectable place to drink. And that only made sense when I followed the men drinking in other places. Mm-hmm. And, and also kind of I could at the same time, I could see, you know, the men in the park were facing kind of, you know, some resentment and hostility from the local residents, but then I could see how similar people, you know, like them, uh, you know, more upper middle class whites were very much welcoming and dependent on these men in their homes. So they're Mm -hmm. very welcomed as workers, but not so much as people. Uh, Now, doing this was a challenge. Uh, You know, I needed years and years to build the relationships where the men would allow me to go to work. And there's so many times when it fell through. And, uh, and there was also a lot of sites that were more off limits. You know, I would have loved to have spent more time in other places that they, they spent time in, be it churches or other places, and certainly in their homes and in their neighborhoods. Uh, but, you know, we all need to make choices. And there were some limits, you know, especially at the home front, that it would have been more difficult for me to access. Um, so, but making that move outside of the park was crucial. And I encourage, you know, I've written a little bit about this with others, about shadowing, about outings, uh, to, to fit something you're looking at within the context of their, their um, larger lives. Mm-hmm. 
Why, why did those other sites end up being off limit to you? Well, I shouldn't say that they were off limits because, I, I mean, I think, you know, if I had spent more time, you know, I spent some time in the, the men's homes, uh, but it was always kind of awkward. And, uh, you know, was it because, you know, as a man around, you know, their wives and their children and, you know, right. and they didn't want to be with me in there either. They wanted <laughs> to hang out with me in the park. Uh, you know, I think if I, I, I don't it would have been a much bigger challenge. Uh, you know, I, if I had spent more time uh, or, or for example, a lot of the men worked in restaurants and I would have mm-hmm. liked to learn more, but getting access to the back room of a restaurant, you know, may be possible, yeah. but it would have, it would have meant a totally different study. And uh, yeah, um, I guess I'll shout out one of my uh, graduate school colleagues, Eli Wilson just has a book out yeah. right about that world. So, you know, yep. you can only in a sense also do so much. Yeah. Um, so your participants are uh, semi-anonymized in the book. Um, you use their real li- nicknames um, and also have some photographs. At the same time, you talk about uh, deciding not to write about their immigration status. Can you explain how you came to these decisions? And was it something that you worked out with the men that you researched? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a great question. I think ethnographers wrestle with this and continue to. And, I, and I'm glad there seems to be more discussion about this rather than just going with the default of using anonymity. Uh, so, again, this is a difficult question because, I mean, of course, my biggest fear is that somehow this book could upset the men's lives and what they've created at Mar Vista. Um, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's hard to also know and to predict how your book will be received. And there's plenty of people writing about this uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And so let me just kind of work, maybe work through a little bit uh, my, my decision making. And I'll start with why I named the park. Um, I named the park in, in, mainly because it would have been so hard to anonymize the park without ripping it of all the details, I think, made it really interesting, especially in the mm-hmm. age of the Internet. It would have been really, really difficult. Uh, not impossible, but difficult. And, and I didn't think it, w- it was worth what necessarily would have been lost. Uh, Second, uh, I wanted to kind of give a name, a real name uh, to, to highlight, you know, the lingering or sometimes very blatant forms of hostility and intolerance on, uh, in West Los Angeles that has a reputation as being progressive and open. Mm-hmm. Um, and third, you know, I really value, uh, you know, revisits and, and this idea that by naming the park, I would allow others to revisit this park or other or, or area sites within the area. Uh, you know, I was just talking to a good friend of mine uh, who mentioned that, he, you know, good ethnography can also become good history, uh, that this mm. book can also be served kind of as a resource for future, res- uh, for future research. And, uh, you know, I certainly benefited that. Uh, Andrew Diener, who wrote about uh, Venice, you know, I think his book came maybe 10 years before my book, you know, he named a couple parks in the area and uh, mm-hmm. talked about how Penmar Park nearby, uh, a lot of Latino immigrant men had gravitated to that park because they had got pushed out of Oakwood Park that had kind of been claimed by black gangs there. And mm-hmm. I, some of the men I met at Mar Vista told me that they initially came from Penmar and lived in Venice. And so it was that by naming uh, these parks, Diener provided a, you know, a really valuable uh, resource for me, which maybe, who knows, you know, my book might right. apply to others. Um, now, in terms of naming the men, uh, this is absolutely something I worked out with them. Uh, they wanted to be named in part because they had a lot of pride for this park. Uh, I, you know, I mm-hmm. talked about 
about how soccer and stories become a way for them to be kind of immortalized. Uh, this was just kind of one more way for them to, to be immortalized. And, um, you know, so, that, you know, this was, you know, worked out with them. Uh, but of course, you know, there were times that I did not include people's names uh, mm-hmm. because I just used more generic pronouns because I thought it, it was unnecessarily maybe, you know, embarrassing. There was one case where I changed a person's name only because I needed a name for the narrative flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think, you know, Randall Contreras talks about, you know, plausible deniability by only using nicknames and first names. You know, there's no last names. Uh, you know, there was a photo. I was at first he agreed to have the photo in the book, but I, you know, it was a photo of really powerful photo of him in handcuffs. And I went mm-hmm. back to him and I said, "Are you sure you want this photo in?" <laughs> and he said, "You know what? No." And uh, so I was constantly yeah. checking. Uh, and then also in terms of nicknames, nicknames were such an important part of park life. And there's no way I could have come close to replicating them. Uh, and, you know, and I needed to include these nicknames. And, you know, if you read the book, you know, you'll see how fun and uh, creative they are. And I, and I didn't want to really ruin that. Uh, and finally, and others have written about this, I mean, it forced me to be because the names were there, you know, uh, that these can be checked. You know, it forced me to be much more, I think, careful and thoughtful um, mm-hmm. than if I hadn't. And I'm not saying people that use, you know, uh, pseudonyms are not being careful or thoughtful, but I think this added a degree of, of pressure, uh, which I think is good. And I, I really appreciate, you know, Mitch Denier, but especially Colin Jeromek and uh, Alexandra Murphy that have, have, have encourage people to think more about this. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and absolutely, I think some sites should use pseudonyms and should not be named. Uh, you know, Forrest Stewart has a book just out about, you know, drill rappers yeah. and uh, it's, it's, it's crucial. Um, yeah. but I think we should think more about it. And the default, I don't think should be uh, anonymity anymore. And you, you made the choice specifically and, and you write about it even to not discuss immigration status which is, uh, you know, speaking of, of immigrants' lives and job prospects is obviously something um, important to them, uh, but uh, is obviously also something that, that could endanger them given that they're not fully anonymized. How, how did you make that decision? And was that a decision that you made uh, with the men themselves? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you've caught me in a bit of a contradiction there. Uh, But I I just felt in terms of legal status, uh, you know, I write about it. It's, you know, I was finishing up with Trump, you know, we'll talk, it's interesting that, you know, Trump is out of office today. Um, But there's just so much kind of uncertainty, and there will remain a lot of uncertainty, as I just didn't feel it, it comfortable. And sometimes you know, uh, Cecilia Menhivar writes about legal liminality, and a lot of these things were just kind of unclear as well to them, in a sense. And I just did not feel comfortable uh, talking about these uh, issues. And uh, you know, I because I wasn't, I didn't follow up too much with the men. Uh, but a lot of them were kind of proud of these stories, you know, crossing the border, and uh, and you know, and and not proud, but you know, wanted people to know all that they've suffered and, uh, you know, many men living in, you know, these shadowed lives and haven't been home for decades because of their fear to come back. You know, this is part of who they are, but I just, I didn't felt, I didn't feel because I was identifying them in all these other ways that this, this was appropriate for the book. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't actually. I didn't mean to say that it's a contradiction at all. And I, I think I appreciate that you were uh, pretty transparent about those choices in your writing. Um, and I think you're right that it's something that every every ethnographer has to sort of work out given yeah. a complex political situation, right? Um, so to follow up, you you mentioned we're we're recording on January twentieth, which is uh, a crucial day um, for some of the for the the people and communities and sort of ideas that you deal with, um, because Trump is leaving, um, and you write specifically about uh, his stigmatization uh, of the population that you write about, which is uh, Latino immigrant, largely immigrant men. Um, when he called them bad hombres, uh, and and you know you can see that stigmatization in the book through uh, some of which you've talked about through the actions of uh, neighborhood residents. Um, so, sort of another dilemma that uh, I think we could see you in the book wrestling with is, you know, some of the things that you write about. We mentioned the men drinking in the park. Um, you also have a whole chapter on the men fighting. Um, these are these are parts of that stigmatization. Um, and I want to say overall, I, I think your portrayal of the man of the men is is extremely respectful. It's very humanizing. You talk about them as complex individuals. Um, but yeah, what what was your thinking? How did you make those choices around? Uh, around writing about sort of those specific activities like drinking and fighting that, that could um, exacerbate stigmatization of this population. No, absolutely. And this is another really important and difficult question. Um, you know, I was always very worried and sensitive about how this book might further stigmatize the men. All right. So this is something I was very, uh, aware of and try to always be reflective of. But I also felt that, you know, by by not writing honestly about the men, uh, it would lead to actually greater stigmatization and dehumanization. Uh, so by writing about these men in, in, you know, one dimensional ways, it would have fed into those stereotypes because these are not like all people. These are, you know, multidimensional people. Uh, they're not saints or sinners. You know, they don't deserve our sympathy or our scorn, but these are, you know, they're fully human. And I wanted to celebrate kind of that that multidimensionality that involved drinking occasionally, that involved fighting occasionally, that involved soccer, that involved crude jokes, that involved loving uh, relationships. Uh, you know, I wanted to give them the same complexity that is often given to you know middle class whites people. And Mario Smalls written really brilliantly on this. Um, and it's so that's that's kind of point one. Uh, but point two is I also wanted to take you know uh, showing the very activities. Uh, so the drinking, the fighting, the soccer, maybe to a less extent. So in these very activities that are used to stigmatize specifically Latino immigrant men, I wanted to show the meaning, the creativity, the joy and the fun in these activities. Uh, I also wanted to show the greater context, you know, so uh, to show how, you know, their drinking in the park was part of, uh, you know, these larger contexts, these structural causes that maybe made it more difficult to drink elsewhere. Um, that drinking and fighting was part of this broader world. And, uh, and then in doing that, I hope I, I, I'm able to show that it's not really bit. that different than how other people socialize. You know, the 
kids, you know, five up five miles up the road at UCLA were doing very similar things. Sorry. No, sorry. Hello? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was. Uh, uh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, other people are doing these very similar things like the UCLA students up the road uh, that are, you know, drinking on the weekends. And I mean, this hit home to me really hard when I was, you know, speaking to a local resident who was upset about all the drinking and we're drinking wine in his beautiful home. And uh, so I wanted to, you know, not only, you know, show their full complexity, but also take these very activities that are used to stigmatize them to show uh, the greater meaning and, and context to them, um, you know, and, but, you know, that being said, I was not naive and I was very, I tried to be, and again, I look forward to hearing what people think, but I tried to be careful. I, you know, I kept anything out that felt, you know, gratuitous or kind of fed into stereotypes or just in there to, you know, titillate readers. Um, you know, I, I really tried to, to keep those things out. And uh, to be careful and thoughtful in my writing. And to, to return to your point about Trump, I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, w Trump entered, you know, the, the, the White House long after I had left the, the park for the, the serious amount of field work. And uh, he's now, you know, departs as the book comes out. But, you know, his kind of anti, you know, immigrant rhetoric, uh, his actions, um, his sentiments, you know, predates his presidency and unfortunately will proceed his uh, departure. And so I was always very concerned about that. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to what readers think about the decisions that I made. Yeah, no, I think it's to, to that stigmatization issue. Uh, I think it's an important thing, you know, in, that in different forms, uh, an important dilemma that, that probably pops up for, for many of us. I know that I've thought about that. Um, mm -hmm. But also, uh, it's the book has an important political message too, in sort of understanding. And Trump is one, but just this contradiction between. And you said it earlier. You know, we're happy. We as sort of a general white middle class potentially uh, stigmatizing these populations are happy to have them uh, fixing up our homes and working for us, but we don't necessarily want to see them in public parks by our house. Um, and yeah. that's a contradiction. And, and what, yeah. Nothing. Um, so a question going back to the men, mm -hmm. um, you write a little bit in the book about, uh, how the men themselves understood your project. Um, it sounds like you were very open from the start that you were doing a research project. Um, my favorite line uh, to that was that the men uh, joked with you and maybe others in your life as well, that it seemed like a weak excuse to play soccer <laughs> and drink beer all day. Yeah. Um, so my, my first reaction was this actually seemed like a very strong excuse to play soccer and drink beer all day. Um, mm -hmm. But sort of beyond that, how, how did they understand uh, your work? And you know, now that you've published a book, um, which is new, um, but now that you've published a book and several articles about this experience, you know, have you, have you shared, have you shared these works with them and are you planning on doing so? And, and what response have you got? Yeah, no, these are again, great, great questions. That I think all ethnographers, uh, wrestle with. So, 
to begin, I mean, I tried to be as transparent, you know, about the project, both through kind of the, the formal means through the IRB, but also just in terms of how I talked to the men about what I was doing. Um, but it, it's often kind of hard to know. And I think Mitch Denier and others write about how people really feel about, you know, you and the project. Uh, you know, but as you mentioned, you know, soon many forgot about it, but most kind of made light of it. And uh, it was it was kind of a resource, like all sorts of things in the park just to have fun with, you know, put that in your book or your so-called book. When is that going to be finished? Uh, but at the same time, jokes aside, I do think there was a, a degree of pride in that uh, that I was writing this book in the sense that it confirmed their belief that the park was special. And, uh, you know, you know, and to go back to your question, if I share, you know, I, I had, I did share some articles, uh, you know, they weren't really all that interested, to be honest. Uh, I think part of that is language, but it's also like, you know, I'm telling them what they already know in, in a sense. Uh, so they're just always not that interested. You know, maybe the book will be different. You know, the book just came out. I know some of it ordered it. I've sent a bunch of copies to guys. Uh, you know, there's issue of language. Some don't read in English. Uh, you know, I suspect, you know, they're going to, you know, they're proud that I wrote it, you know, uh, but I think they're going to look to see if their names it in and if their photo and, uh, you know, as I mentioned, this kind of way to be immortalized. And, uh, you know, sometimes, I don't know, I, sometimes I think we might overstate kind of the, uh, uh, the people we study, the interest they have in the final product. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I do, what I do encourage ethnographers, and this is what I really gained a lot from is as I was doing the research, I was constantly bringing them ideas that I had, questions that I had. I would ask them to check claims that I, that I was hoping to make. And just everyday talk as we hung out or when we drove around. And I'd say, you know, I, you know, I noticed that people that fight once, they never fight again. You know, well, why not? Mm-hmm. They'd say, you know, then they would say, well, once they've done it, it's done. They don't need to do it again. There's no much, you know, everyone knows what's going to happen and mm-hmm. uh, it's over. Uh, or I would say, man, a lot of people never put in money to drink. And they'd say, ah, it's fine. You know, they'll put in later and it's not worth fighting about and everyone's going to drink. And it's, you know, so that's what I would I would do a lot. And that's where I really where the men were really collaborators in this research and giving me feedback along the way. And it's something I, you know, encourage uh you know, all ethnographers to do. Um, and rather than more about the more formal, you know, having them sit down and read a, you know, a draft of the paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Alex and I are uh, facing similar dilemmas of how to, maybe it's interesting to think about how people that you're studying perceive you and, you know, what they think about uh, this field that we are in and the kinds of work that we do. I know that my interlocutors are often very confused about what I do and even though I keep trying to explain to them that I'm a researcher they're like oh so are you doing a survey and I'm like no 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 I don't do surveys but you know that's the most popular research instrument in India so we just assume that I am a survey researcher Um, but speaking about survey research uh, we would actually love to know what are the ethnographic texts that inspired you while you were writing this book I mean you've already talked about um, Dina's work and you've mentioned Forrest Stewart and uh, Mitch Denier and others but were there any striking books or articles that that you kept going back to while writing the book? Yeah, um, you know, so as I mentioned, you know, I, I love ethnography. If this was, I'm in my office, you could see I'm just surrounded by all these great ethnographies. So I was constantly inspired mm-hmm. by, you know, you know, the classics and, and you know, uh, more recent classics, you know, Sidewalk, Black on the Block, uh, and others in ethnography. So I, I'm just really inspired and motivated by ethnography, whatever the subject material. Um, 
but in, but also I'm you know also within the immigration itself, there's a lot of just wonderful uh, ethnographies, especially you know Fragmented Ties was really the book that by Cecilia Menjivar that really made me kind of question the inner workings of networks. So that book was really crucial. But there's another a lot of other great, you know, Honor in the American Dream, Mexican New York, Domestica, work by Joanna Drebby, Angela Garcia, Sergio Chavez, you know, so many great ethnographies in immigration. But I will say, I wish there was more of this kind of what I refer to as kind of street corner ethnography and migration studies. There are some, but I wish kind of the same attention that has been given primarily to black and white men in terms of kind of meaning making on the block, so to speak. Uh, I wish there was more of that in immigration. And there, there, there are studies and there. I know there's a lot in the pipeline, but I'd like to see, you know, or, or like Gary Allen Fine's kind of work about, you know, mainly more middle class white activities. Uh, I'd like to see more of that in immigration studies. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and finally, you know, I think I was probably most inspired and I learned the most from my fellow graduate students at UCLA. I mean, I really was lucky uh, to be kind of part of this incredible cohort and place to be trained as an ethnographer. And, uh, you know, if you check out my Twitter, uh, I don't even know, at DTruy, that's it. Um, you know, I've made this little collage of recent uh, published uh, ethnographies that grew out of dissertations at UCLA. And uh, and there's a lot more on the way. And, uh, you know, that's where I probably uh, drew the most inspiration from. That's excellent. I mean, as an ethnographer, I also draw inspiration from the UCLA hub of ethnography. So that's uh, that's great. Um, before we let you go, we would love to know what you're working on currently and what we can hope to read by you in the near future. Well, I appreciate you asking. So, uh, so now I'm kind of in another long-term ethnographic project uh, that's looking specifically at agricultural guest workers from Mexico uh, that come to Virginia to pick apples. And uh, so kind of a similar close, you know, ethnographic analysis of their experiences here in Virginia. But what's a little bit different is I've also been to, to Mexico a few times, was hoping to go in the spring, but that didn't happen and trying to see uh, the effects of their work here on their communities back home. So that's a little bit different than uh, uh, this book. And, and I'm also trying to situate the, these agricultural guest worker program, the H-2A visa within a broader kind of political economy, if you will, of mm-hmm. guest worker programs. And, uh, you know, it was really the only program that wasn't pretty much shut down by the Trump administration. And so trying to, to make sense of that. And um, mm-hmm. I appreciate you asking then. We'll see if it takes 13 years, but uh, um, more of a slow <laughs> uh, uh, method. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, uh, yeah, good ethnography takes a long time to simmer I guess so uh, well thanks so much for taking time out and uh, chatting with me and Alex today we really really again love the book and uh, we are very excited for all that it has to offer to sociology of immigration to urban literature to to ethnography in general and I'm, I mean we are confident that it's going to be a very big hit and uh, we can't wait to see more of it and more discussions about it uh, around us and uh, yeah, thanks a lot for um, for joining us today. Uh, thank you. This was so much fun. And uh, first time talking about the good book publicly. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Um, all right, then. Uh, well, have a good day and stay safe, as uh, is now standard saying in these COVID times. No, this was so much fun. And uh, uh, you know, I really like the questions. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, 
I, I really like the the project you guys are doing. And uh, you know, if there's any room uh, uh, or if you need any you know guidance or anything that I can be a yeah. part of, I've been I've been waiting for a website like you guys have created. So you know, uh, feel free to reach out if I can be of help of any way. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah. This, this kind of conversation is exactly um, what we were hoping to to create space for through the website. Um, so this was awesome.